Well, with the new year, we're back in Jonah, and we are going to finish Jonah pretty soon. We're in chapter 4 right now, so if you would turn with me to chapter 4, we'll take a look at the first four verses, Jonah 1 through 4. Next week, uh, possibly Abner will look at the rest of the chapter, and that may be the end of Jonah for us, but we'll see how it goes. But this is what we'll do for the next couple of weeks, at least. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, we saw how Jonah preached the message to the Ninevites, and we saw how all of Nineveh repented. It was a pretty unbelievable scene to see, Uh, and, you know, with such a massive revival, you would think that Jonah would have celebrated. He would have given glory to God. He would have been happy about this. But as you know, that's not what happened. We know the story. Nevertheless, that is what we would expect from Jonah, right? I mean, you think about the prodigal son. When he, the prodigal son, returned and when he repented, his father threw a feast for him. He gave him the best robe. He gave him a ring. He killed a fattened calf for him so that they would have a celebration, and they celebrated. Then you think about that passage that Jesus himself said in Luke 15.10. He said that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it would be only right for Jonah to celebrate immensely over the repentance of an entire nation. But Jonah couldn't stand seeing the Ninevites repent. So we can ask the question, what was the problem with Jonah? Why didn't he rejoice? Why wasn't he happy about the repentance of Nineveh? Well, the problem with Jonah was that he didn't have the heart of God for the lost. He didn't have the heart of God for the lost. God wanted the Ninevites saved. Jonah wanted the Ninevites destroyed. The heart of God is love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Jonah's heart was to hate his enemies and to pray for their destruction. That was Jonah's response. Now, as we think about this, as we look at Jonah and his response, we may not relate to the hatred that he had towards the Ninevites, towards other people. Because as you look around you, as you look at the church and this group itself, I don't know, we have what, like 20, 30 nations coming together and worshiping God in unity and loving one another. Right? So we may not relate to the hatred that he had, but we still have to examine ourselves. Do we have the heart of God as a whole in all respects? evangelism, sacrifice, humility, finances, being others-minded, being Christ-like. Are we a man or a woman after God's own heart? The beauty of this portion of Jonah is that even though Jonah doesn't have the heart of God, we see that God doesn't give up on him. God continues to work on him, to, to work on his heart. He doesn't abandon Jonah. God doesn't abandon us in our imperfections, in our sinfulness. God continues to refine us and to make us godly, just as we see in this portion of Jonah where God continues to refine Jonah to make Jonah godly. And this is what we see in this portion of Jonah. We see Jonah's angry heart. We see Jonah's angry prayer. And then we see God's compassionate response to all of this. But we do get a glimpse of Jonah's angry heart at the very start of the chapter. Jonah just witnessed an entire nation repent. 
And here's his response in verse 1. It says, But this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. As you look at this response, you see the, the foundation of Jonah's reaction is that Jonah redefines evil. He sees the repentance of Nineveh as an evil instead of as good. Now, some translations may have, uh, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Or they might say it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And these are good translations. What they're trying to do is they're trying to capture the immense anger, the immense emotion of anger that Jonah had towards what he just saw. But very literally, here's what it says. But this was evil to Jonah, a great evil. The text repeats the word evil twice to show how wicked Jonah thought the repentance of the Ninevites was. And the disturbing thing here is that the text is talking about how the Ninevites turned from actual evil. At the very beginning of the book, you remember, God uses the word evil to describe the Ninevites. And he's talking specifically about their sin. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God says to Jonah, call out against Nineveh, for their evil has come up before me. So evil is defined very clearly in this passage. It's what is contrary to God's will. That's what the Ninevites were doing. So God sent Jonah to warn them because of the evil that they were doing. And the whole idea of repentance is that the Ninevites turn from their evil and they repent. And we see this at the end of Jonah 3. And then because they repent, God relents from the calamitous evil, which is the same word from the threat that he said that he would send against them if they do not repent, but they do repent. The problem with Jonah is that as soon as the Ninevites turn from their evil, this becomes evil to Jonah. Jonah's reaction is absolutely warped. Think about this. What calmed God's wrath is the same thing that provoked Jonah's wrath. And what all this means is that what is evil to God is not evil to Jonah, and what is not evil to God is, in fact, evil to Jonah. And the Bible condemns this perspective. Pastor John mentioned this verse uh, in the first service, Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And that's exactly what, literally exactly what Jonah is doing here, calling evil good and good evil. And the terrible thing about all this is that when I say, Isaiah is saying this, he's talking about wicked people who reject God. And they commit all kinds of sin throughout their life without any shame. Isaiah says that they rise early in the morning to have strong drink. They declare the wicked righteous for a bribe. They taunt God, saying, let him hurry. Let him do what he said he was going to do. And here we see this very thing with the prophet of God, Jonah. And this is an illustration of when non-believers look at the lives of believers and they say, how's your life different from mine? Why should I worship your God? Because your life looks just like my life. In Romans 2.24, Paul writes about the hypocritical Israelites, and he says there, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles 
because of you. We as believers are supposed to live lives that stand out, that are different, that cause people to say, why is their life so different? That cause people to say, maybe there is a God. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 5.16. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Sadly, This was not Jonah's life. Jonah redefines evil, and because of this, he now becomes angry, and this begins to show externally in his life. The text says that this was a great evil to Jonah, and he became angry. And literally, in Hebrew, this idiom is, it was hot for him. He became angry as, it was hot for him. That's how you say he became angry in Hebrew. And we also have this in English, right? He has a hot temper. He had steam coming out of his ears. Right? Another one that I just learned, I didn't know that this was an expression, but he just blew a gasket. Right? <laughs> I knew that this was a thing for the cars, but not for people. I remember when I was still going to college, I was dry- driving a car, and the car was basically dead. Uh, but I'm on Wilshire, so I'm busy street, standing at a light about to turn left. Lots of cars, everybody's mad, everybody's honking because lots, there's traffic. But I'm standing there uh, to turn left, and all of a sudden, I hear this boom, there's explosion right under my hood. And all of this smoke starts coming out. And I'm just thinking, oh man, this is so embarrassing. I was less sad for my car than I was embarrassed because there were so many people around us. But this is what is happening, right? You see something happens inside, and then you begin to see it on the outside. That's the idea here with Jonah. Jonah was burning. What was inside of him was now showing itself on the outside. And Jesus says this very thing. He says this about the Pharisees or to the Pharisees. Matthew 12, 34, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And this is the terrible thing. We're talking about the prophet of God, and here I am again drawing on verses that relate to people who reject God. But that's what happens when you don't have the heart of God. And that was the situation with Jonah. He had an angry heart, and it was beginning to show externally. And this brings us to the second observation here, the second part of his reaction, and that is his angry prayer. We see, we hear his angry prayer, which is the expression of what was happening within his heart. So let me read verses 2 and 3 in their entirety. Jonah prayed to Yahweh and said, Ah, O Yahweh, was not this my word to myself while I was still in my own land? Therefore I went ahead to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning evil. So now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. Jonah is angry that God is merciful to the Ninevites. And in this anger, this reaction reveals two attitudes about Jonah. First of all, it reveals that Jonah is angry because God is fulfilling his own will, being merciful to the Ninevites, rather than Jonah's will, which would be the destruction of the Ninevites. 
Now, when Jonah begins his prayer, you might think that, okay, so this is good. Jonah is submitting to God's will. He shows emotion. He says, ah, oh, Yahweh, right? He uses God's name, Yahweh. He's appealing to God. He's praying to God. And you're thinking, maybe this is his prayer of praise that the Ninevites repented. Or maybe this is his prayer of repentance that he was ever rebellious, that he was ever disobedient to God. And the word prayed that is used here, this is the very word that the Bible uses many other times, 84 other times in the Bible, to speak of somebody interceding for somebody else. When Moses intercedes for the Israelites after they bow down to the golden calf, this is the, the word that says Moses prayed for them and God spared the Israelites. Even in Jonah chapter 2, when Jonah was about to drown, it says Jonah prayed to Yahweh and then God spared his life. But here in this passage, Jonah's prayer is not a prayer of repentance or a prayer of praise or a prayer of intercession. It's a prayer of accusation. He says in verse 2, Was not this my word while I was still in my land? He's setting up the authority of his word, his will, against the authority of God's word and God's will. Remember at the beginning of Jonah, Jonah 1.1, but also again later on in Jonah chapter 3, it is the word of Yahweh that comes to Jonah. And Jonah is to preach the word of God to the Ninevites. But here Jonah speaks of my word, emphasizing his word above God's word. And then he also speaks about my land. The implication being that this is where I live. This is where I work. This is where I function. Nineveh is not my land. I don't worry about Nineveh. Jonah wanted to be God's prophet as long as Jonah got to do what he wanted. I'll do what you tell me to do as long as you tell me to do what I want to do. That was Jonah's attitude. That was his approach. Well, if this is part of your theology then you're going to disobey God. And Jonah himself says that this is why he disobeyed God. He says in the very next line, therefore, I went ahead to flee to Tarshish. God told Jonah what Jonah didn't want to do, so Jonah went the other way. He was so strong-willed, so stubborn, so arrogant, that he tried to stop God's plan. And here, he has so much chutzpah. He has so much arrogance. He's speaking to God as if his plan is better than God's plan. He's trying to help God understand that what he was trying to do not only makes sense, it's actually better than what God was trying to do. The heart of Jonah was completely set against the heart of God, and he was angry that God was fulfilling his own will rather than Jonah's will. This is the first attitude that he reveals in his anger. And then his second attitude is that he's being completely egotistical, ungrateful, hypocritical, all of these things. Because because of the hatred that he has towards the idea that God is going to be merciful towards the Ninevites. He wants God to be merciful to the Israelites. He wants God to be merciful to him, to Jonah, but not to the Ninevites. Jonah says, 
I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Jonah complains that God is gracious and that God is compassionate. And gracious is the idea that God gives us what we don't deserve and that he pursues us with this graciousness, like Psalm 23 says. And compassionate, God is compassionate. It's a very particular term. It's actually related to the word womb, like when a mother carries her baby in her womb, and it describes how a mother protects her children in her womb. And so rather than being indifferent or uncaring or destructive, God shows immense care for the Ninevites, and Jonah cannot stand the idea of this. Then Jonah complains that God is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And the expression slow to anger literally means long nostrils. It's a Hebrew idiom for patient. Now the image is that when someone becomes angry, their nose flares up. And we know this image even you know, from our society when the bull gets angry, right? They, they do this thing. You can see this in real bulls. They do this thing with their nose they, where they blow steam through their nose when they become angry. And the image here is that the nostrils are so long that it takes a long time for this anger to express itself. And the purpose is that it takes a lot for God to become angry. That's what Jonah is complaining about. Now, in addition to the fact that God is slow to anger, Jonah complains that God is full of loving kindness. And that's our word, chesed. Kindness that is driven by love, not by self-interest. It's kindness that is driven by loyalty, not by impulse. Kindness that keeps promises no matter what. And it's because of the fact that God is slow to anger and because of the fact that God shows loving kindness that we have salvation, that we experience sanctification, that we're able to use our gifts to serve the church and to serve Christ. If God were to apply Jonah's logic, none of us would be sitting here. None of us would be saved. If God did not have loving kindness, then Christ would never go to the cross to die for our sins. But because God is loving, Christ did take our sins on the cross. And these were the very characteristics of God that God was expressing to the Ninevites. And Jonah knew this, and he was bothered by this fact. He was bothered that God was going to show these attributes and express these attributes to the, uh, towards the Ninevites, and that they would then be saved, spared, and not destroyed. Now, the problem with Jonah's complaints, in addition to all this, is not simply that he's illogical. You know, God is kind, and so I'm not happy. doesn't really make sense. But it's not only that. It's also that Jonah is egotistical and selfish and ungrateful because Jonah and Israel, they experience this very compassion of God. The very first time that this description of God is mentioned in the Bible is when God forgives Israel for worshiping the golden calf. Right after God makes the covenant with Israel, the Israelites break the commandments. They break the covenant that God made with them, and they build a golden calf in Exodus 32, and they worship that golden calf. And God could have wiped out the entire nation right away for doing this. 
but he chose not to because he's gracious, because he's full of patience, he's full of loving kindness. In Exodus 34, verse 6, right after this episode, God explains to Moses why he does this, why he shows patience. He reveals part of his glory to Moses. And so this is what he says. God says this, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The only reason that the Israelites survived after they worshiped the golden calf is because God is gracious and God is merciful. But this was in the past, right? Jonah knew this because it was in the past. But God was also promised to be kind and loving to the Israelites in the future. And Jonah knew this. In Joel, in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, Joel says that if Israel repents of their sin in the future, God will relent from the wrath and from the judgment that he promises to them if they continue in their sin. So Jonah knew that God was going to be compassionate to Israel in the future as well. Now, even more specific to Jonah, in addition to God's kindness to Israel, Jonah himself experienced the kindness of God when he was drowning, when Jonah was drowning, but God sent a fish to save him. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, Jonah praises God because God is loving. He uses the word chesed there. He recognizes that God expressed loving kindness towards him and he saved him. And when you think about everything that Jonah knew and everything that he experienced, and now he's complaining that God is kind, this shows the fact that he's so selfish, so ungrateful, and so egotistical. He wants this for himself, but not for others. And he admits that he knows all this because he himself says, I knew that you are loving. He doesn't complain because he doesn't know. He complains because he does No, this is the level of wickedness that Jonah is demonstrating in his response. But the degree of his wickedness, of his egotism, of his selfishness, it goes even deeper than this. He says that he would rather die than see God save the Ninevites. In verse 3, he says, So now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me. In chapter 1, verse 12, He told the sailors, throw me overboard, let me die, because he didn't want to preach the message of warning to the Ninevites. And now here in chapter 4, there's three different occasions in verse 3, in verse 8, verse 9. He says, let me die. This is a prophet of God saying he would rather die than see people saved. Listen to when Moses prayed for the Israelites. After they worshiped the golden calf, this is what he said. He said, if you destroy them, then take my life also. So Moses is saying to God, if you kill them, then kill me. Jonah is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, if you don't destroy them, then kill me. He would rather die than see people saved. Again, he's ready to receive this grace from God himself, but he's not willing to have others receive the same grace from God. 
And this fact that he prefers death over life shows even more deeply that he has a completely distorted view of life and death. He says, death is better to me than life. Now, on the one hand, in saying this and thinking this, he abandons his purpose of life to worship God, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Psalm 6, 5 says, there is no remembrance of you, God, in death and Sheol, who will give you thanks. We are to cherish this life and we are to worship God in this life. At the same time, his thinking is so distorted by preferring death that he wants death, which is God's judgment for sin. That is the reason there is death. But he wants that. And that's what happens when you cling to sin. When you cling to sin, it distorts your thinking and it distorts your worship of God. So how do we explain Jonah's anger here? It's actually pretty simple. Knowing theology is one thing. Practicing theology is a completely separate experience. You have to apply to your heart. You have to apply to your life what you know in your head. That was God's criticism of Israel in Isaiah 29, 13. This was Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7. He says, This people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jonah's theology was on his lips, but his heart was opposed to the heart of God. But here's the good news. Even though the situation with Jonah is so terrible, God doesn't abandon him. God doesn't leave him in his state of sinfulness. God keeps pressing and pursuing and working and refining him so that he would become godly. And this is what we see in God's response to Jonah's anger. We see God's compassion. God's compassionate response towards Jonah. God responds with a simple but a piercing question. In verse 4, it says, And Yahweh said, Do you have good reason to be angry? That's all God says. Despite Jonah's angry heart and despite his angry prayer, God is gracious to Jonah by responding to him rather than by killing him. God keeps challenging Jonah because God loves refining hearts. That's what God does with us. God doesn't simply leave us in our sinfulness. He keeps working on us and refining us so that he can use us to be his instruments for his glory through the church. So firstly, when we look at this, we see that God shows compassion to Jonah by responding to him and by sparing his life. The three simple words in Yahweh said, they show more grace than Jonah even realizes. It says Yahweh said, not Yahweh scorched or Yahweh incinerated Jonah. God could have easily and instantly fulfilled Jonah's desire to die, but he doesn't. And if he had done that, he would have been completely justified. But he shows patience. 
You know, we cry and we complain about our first world problems all the time. But imagine if God wasn't patient with us. I don't like my job. Okay, you're fired. Okay, you don't have to like your job. I don't like my car. Car accident. Okay, no problem. God doesn't have to be patient with us. I remember when I was in seminary, I was working for a private school. Um, with uh, It was an elementary school, so tons of children. And as I started working there, my boss, the principal, she was teaching me how to hold discipline so that they don't cry, so that the kids don't cry, and so that they don't complain. And she was teaching me various things on how to do that. Now, she was a bit untraditional. She was from Soviet Union. So, <laughs> so she was teaching me to rule with an iron fist. Well, in this conversation, in telling me how to uh, keep control of the class, she brings up an illustration. And she says, when... My son was four years old. He was playing with his toys. And I came up to him and I said, okay, son, his name was Daniel. It's time to go to bed. And so I started putting the toys away. Well, as I started putting the toys away, he starts crying and he starts screaming. But then she says, but I will have none of that. If I say, you obey. (laughs) So she says, I went to the garage. I got a hammer. I came back, and I started crushing those toys with a hammer. I was stunned, too. (laughs) She says, I have no patience for crying and complaining. Now, I thought that this was just a bad reputation that the Russians have, but (laughs) not with her. She has no patience for crying or complaining, Well, imagine if God never had patience towards us either. And there are times in the Bible when God doesn't have patience, right? You think about Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. They bring a sacrifice that God did not command, and so instantly God incinerates them. You think about Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They lie to Peter and they lie to God about how much money they were giving to the church, and so God immediately takes their life. And God could have done this very thing with Jonah, but he doesn't. And the only reason he doesn't is because God is compassionate. Not because God needs Jonah, not because God owes something to Jonah, only because God is compassionate. God shows his compassion to Jonah by responding to him in a way that actually spares his life as opposed to taking his life. And secondly, God also shows his compassion by asking him a question that is supposed to expose to Jonah the sinfulness of Jonah's reaction. God says to him, do you have good reason to be angry? Do you have a good reason that you're burning right now, Jonah? God doesn't make Jonah feel good here. God doesn't say to him, this is your truth, here's my truth. God is patient But God pierces through all of the smoke and he goes straight for the heart and straight for the issue. Are you angry for a good reason, Jonah? Earlier we saw that God confronted Jonah about his twisted understanding of evil. 
Now, God is showing to Jonah his twisted understanding of good. Righteous anger takes place when somebody sins against God. Jonah's anger is not because somebody sinned against God, but because God forgave somebody's sin. He's like the older brother of the prodigal son. He becomes angry when the prodigal son is forgiven. And then Luke 15, 28 says that the brother, he became angry and was not wanting to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. This is what Jonah is doing. And here again, I'm comparing Jonah to someone that the Bible condemns. But how can we compare him to anyone else when God rejoices when Nineveh is forgiven And Jonah is angry when Nineveh is forgiven. So God confronts him. Is this a good reason for you to be angry over Jonah? Now, while Jonah is angry that God is compassionate, God shows him compassion by confronting him. Rather than by killing him, by confronting him to reveal to him his sin so that he would refine him so that he would become godly. In the end, as we look at this entire passage, the problem with Jonah is that Jonah doesn't have a heart of God. And that's exactly what God was working on in this passage, what God continues to work out throughout the rest of the chapter, throughout the rest of the narrative. God doesn't abandon Jonah, doesn't leave him alone in his sinfulness. And God doesn't abandon us in our sinfulness. And this is an encouragement to us to repent before God, to trust Him, and to receive the discipline that He sends to us so that we would become godly. He keeps refining us and making us more godly, making us more like Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that you do not abandon us. We thank you that you keep working on us, that you keep working on our lives, that you keep refining us and exposing our sin to us so that we would become more like you, so that we would become more like Christ, so that we would be able to glorify you in a pure way, in a more faithful way, in a more committed way. Lord, we thank you that you do not become frustrated with us and leave us when we continue in this life of sinful flesh. Lord God, it is our desire and our endeavor to become like you, and we do ask you that you would continue to work in us. And Lord, we do ask you that you would continue to make our hearts soft and repentant and help us to focus our gaze on you to become more like you and to focus our lives on worshiping you. I pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.